0: Hello and welcome to this fifth episode of Friends of Europe's Frankly Speaking podcast series, with special focus on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm Paul Taylor, Senior Fellow in the Peace, Security and Defense Program, and a columnist for Politico. In this episode, recorded on Thursday, March the 10th, I'm joined by my fellow Senior Fellow, Jamie Shea, former Deputy Assistant Secretary General of NATO uh, for Emerging Security Challenges, and Tamsin Rose, Senior Fellow for Health and Humanitarian Affairs at Friends of Europe. Two weeks into Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the war has already taken a terrible toll of human life and destruction. According to the International Rescue Committee, as of March 8th, at least 400 civilians had been reported killed, and many more are feared dead. More than 160,000 people have reportedly been displaced within the country, and already 2 million have been forced to flee to neighboring countries. Most are women and children. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees estimates that there could be up to 5 million refugees. They're calling this the fastest growing crisis in Europe since World War II. Given this dire situation and the fact that the humanitarian corridors have thus far mostly not been respected by Russia, what more can the EU and neighboring countries do? How can we prepare the necessary infrastructure for the refugees? How can we protect internally displaced persons? And will Western unity hold and for how long? And to what extent will the West inevitably be sucked into this war? Well, let me start with you, Tamsin. Tell us what's being done at EU and national level to welcome these refugees.
1: Well, uh, thank you, Paul. And as you said, it's an enormous logistical challenge. Uh, Over 2.2 million refugees have uh, fled the Ukraine, according to the UNHCR. And bear in mind that just last year, the UNHCR already said that globally, we have more refugees than we've had since the Second World War and that people who are displaced are likely to be displaced for up to 30 years. So what we're seeing here is the front wave of what is going to be an enormous challenge to address it. So first of all, let's talk about the logistical immediate challenges, which is getting food, water, first aid, medicines, warm clothes and shelter for people both in Ukraine who've been displaced and those at the border. We need really simple things like, you know, electricity to charge phones. People have often been traveling for two, three days or waiting at the borders to get over. Many of them have relatives in other parts of Europe. They need to get from A to B. And we've seen an incredible, extraordinary mobilization of solidarity. Some countries are doing better than others in terms of welcoming and processing refugees. You have countries like the UK that is very reluctantly moving away from its slow visa regime. And it had initially proposed that Ukrainian refugees might like to take advantage of the process they have for fruit picking workers for visas. And other countries like Poland have said, we'll take anyone and everyone. And in fact, they've already received um, one and a quarter million people. And remember, this is a population of less than 40 million people themselves. So this is, this is an extraordinary number of people, many of whom have been taken straight into private homes. We've seen citizen platforms that have been put together on the fly on social media to match. People saying, I can take a family, I can take one person and then being able to, somebody else saying, I can, I can transport from the border to here. So incredible widespread civilian mobilization. And that's incredible. But more people are crossing the border every single day. And the question is, how long can this ad hoc support work? At EU level, the EU has done something that it's never done before. In 2001, it created something called the Temporary Protection Directive. And it was as a direct response to some of the the last big wave of displaced people in Europe since uh, the, the conflicts in Yugoslavia. This temporary protection order means that refugees going anywhere in Europe have the same rights, which means they are eligible for a residence permit. They have access to employment, health care, education, housing and social welfare with possibilities for family re- relocation. So that's the political commitment. It's open ended in the sense that for the duration of this temporary protection, and at the moment it could be up to three years, all people arriving from Ukraine in Europe theoretically have this possibilities. Of course, we now need to see how it can work. And the interestingly enough, the countries that are the front line, and here, we're talking on Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, are also the countries in when we had a big wave of refugees in 2015, 2016, were the least willing to host refugees. And so we're seeing a huge sea change. And as we know, there'll be a change to their political map. But I think I'll leave it there as the immediate responses that are being done. Yeah,
0: I can only say, uh, I can only echo that living in France, which is a country which was also not enthusiastic about taking in refugees in 2015, 2016, there's been a huge outpouring of grassroots level solidarity and already uh, refugees being welcomed uh, from my little village. Uh, The deputy mayor has driven to Poland last night uh, to deliver uh, relief supplies collected in the village and to bring back the first... Uh, Ukrainian families uh, to be housed here. Now, um, let's look at the situation inside, the humanitarian situation inside Ukraine for a minute, with 160,000 internally displaced people and destroyed public infrastructure. What are the immediate concerns inside Ukraine and what are the relief efforts currently being organized there, uh, Tamsin?
1: Well, uh, I'm sure you've been seeing the very strong messages from President Zelensky, particularly about the deteriorating situation in Mariupol, where he announced that you know, a child has died of dehydration. The, the city has been without electricity, water, uh, for several days. So the emergency there is is basic. It, it's food and water. It, in most places, there is a disruption to the energy supplies. You've got sub-zero temperatures there. People are sheltering in cold, damp, wet basements. So the the immediate needs are it, it's food, it's shelter, it's water, it, um, it's basic medicines. We know that many hospitals have been hit. Ukraine is saying as many as 70 Hospital and healthcare facilities have been hit. WHO has confirmed, from their point of view, at least 16 hospitals have been hit, and that's huge disruption to healthcare. We've got the pharmaceutical industries that have made large numbers of both cash donations and in kind. So we're seeing donations of things like antibiotics, antivirals. Insulin for ongoing care. We've got uh, trauma support and uh, clean sterile kits, burns equipment, all the things that you would need in in battlefield and in trauma. Are they getting through? Well, that's the big challenge. The WHO has been liaising with the Ministry of Health in Ukraine and has already sent, they've got 20 emergency teams on the ground, more than 25 ready to go. They've got expert teams in the surrounding countries, Hungary, Poland, Moldova, Romania, as well as teams that have gone in on the ground. The UNHCR is trying to get things in. For the moment, things can go in, obviously, in West Ukraine. Can they get any further into the, country, the cities that are under siege? That's the biggest challenge. And this obviously, I think, links to why you've got such strong requests and support you know, to keep the keep the skies clear. Because if you've got convoys of humanitarian aid and it's getting targeted and we've got some evidence of that, then clearly this is the challenge. And when you have infrastructure destroyed and, of course, the roads are being blockaded to stop the Russian invading army, those are the same roads that you need to be able to bring in. Um, the 36 metric tons of medical supplies, for example, that the WHO immediately mobilized and more that are coming.
0: Yeah. Well, Jamie, let me turn to you. Um, I'll come back to uh, Tamsin later about how uh, the, the war uh, compounds the, uh, the, the pandemic crisis that we've been uh, undergoing for the last couple of years. But um, Jamie, do you think that there's any prospect of setting up uh, safe j- zones uh, inside Ukraine that could be Uh, protected by the UN, um, how likely is it that either the International Committee of the Red Cross or the United Nations are allowed to and able to oversee humanitarian corridors?
2: Well, as Tamsin said, uh, the UN certainly has the agencies, the UNHCR, WHO, uh, others, World Food Programme, to implement those kind of humanitarian corridors or humanitarian safe areas. But as you know, uh, Paul, as somebody like me who lived through the crisis in Bosnia in the 1990s, uh, this requires a resolution by the UN Security Council. So, of course, Russia, as a permanent member, would have to play along uh, to provide a mandate. So we'd have to see if Russia would do that or under what conditions. And as that disastrous experience of the so-called safe areas like Srebrenica uh, in Bosnia showed, uh, if you mix the humanitarian motive with uh, a military uh, action, uh, because uh, the safe areas in Bosnia were never demilitarized. The Bosnian armed forces were always inside those cities, ostensibly to protect them. And for that reason, the Bosnian Serbs, with the tragic consequences in Srebrenica that we know, uh, considered them to be military targets. So this time around, I think we would have to have on both sides, Russia and Ukraine, uh, a, a firm understanding that uh, there would be uh, no uh, military activity mingled in with the humanitarian uh, operations, uh, because that could easily lead to pretext for those safe areas to break down. The second thing that I I would say, of course, is we would need some kind of international supervision. Um, The OSCE, which of course has already had the monitoring presence for several years in the Donbass, would seem to be the most likely candidate, simply because they've been on the ground in Ukraine, so they know the terrain. Uh, They've of course now moved out uh, of the country since Russia invaded on February the 24th. But because they've had those teams, uh, many of whom are very experienced. Of course, that was more to patrol. Uh a ceasefire uh, and military activity than the humanitarian corridor, but because, as I say, they do have those teams that were recently there up and running, uh, battle-hardened the most, uh, it would seem most logical to ask them to go back in uh, to police that um, with, uh, uh, of course, a, a UN mandate. But uh, again, this time round, uh, you know, given the, the looseness of the arrangements in Bosnia, it's very important that if were there to be a Security Council resolution, the commitments of all sides be really really firmly nailed down, um, no ambiguity uh, whatsoever. Uh, but again, as I've said, it's going to mean that Russia uh, plays a uh, ball. Uh, otherwise, of course, as uh, Tamsin was saying, uh, uh, any kind of humanitarian corridor would have to be uh, effectively policed by NATO. Uh, and we know, of course, with the whole imbroglio over the no-fly zone, that NATO, uh, up to now, has been extremely reluctant to cross the red line of putting its own forces, either on the ground or in the air, uh, into uh, Ukraine for fear of being uh, seen by Russia as a belligerent and getting dragged into the conflict.
0: Yeah, well, we'll come to that, Jamie. Um, you know, <clears throat> in the last few days, we've seen Uh, the United States and the UK on the one hand and the European Union on the other taking different lines on whether or not to boycott Russian oil and gas. We've seen the United States and Poland taking different lines on supplying Soviet-designed planes to the Ukrainian air force. Um, And we've seen the West uh, rebuffing uh, Ukrainian pleas, as you say, for a no-fly zone. So I have to ask you, Is Western unity in this crisis, in your view, starting to crack after two weeks of war? Uh, and will it only get worse or or is that not what we're seeing?
2: Well, uh, I would say two things, Paul. First of all, uh, I don't think so. And secondly, I would hope not. Uh, no, you, you ask, of course, as always the, the, the right questions there. I, I think you know, let's be practical. It's inevitable that with 30 countries in NATO, 27 countries in the EU, uh, with different governments, with different interests, of course, uh, that as you go deeper and deeper into the more draconian sanctions, which also, of course, uh, 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 imply uh, a certain hit uh, for the Western economies themselves, like you know, depriving themselves of Russian gas and Russian oil overnight. As you go into these more intrusive sanctions, you're going to have a differentiated approach, as with the UK, as you rightly say, and Joe Biden in the US uh, deciding to sanction uh, Russian oil. The EU, of course, as you know very well, is debating all of this at the summit in Versailles uh, today and tomorrow. But Germany, as we know, which uh, imports 27% of its oil from Russia and 40% of its gas clearly is going to be under a lot more pressure uh, when it comes to uh, imposing an overnight, uh, uh, you know, sudden uh, 100% to zero, as it were, uh, uh, sanction. So I don't think it's dangerous as long as it's done in a concerted way. Uh, I mean, there is already a very firm package of sanctions, and yesterday the EU extended those sanctions to Belarus, which I think was overdue. Uh, More Russian banks have now also been included in restrictions on, on, on SWIFT. And, and, and the like, more sanctions than oligarchs. So you know, the EU as a, as a block, as it were, is still moving forward. But I think, again, as we come into the more draconian sanctions, uh, where different countries have different margins of maneuver, we're going to have to accept a differentiated approach. That's OK as long as the basic package remains in place and as long, as long as that is done in consultation. The other thing I would say, Paul, of course, is that, as you know very well too, there's a short-term aspect here of which sanctions can you take now, today, uh, without obviously uh, undermining social peace. Who wants to see, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of yellow jackets back on the streets of Paris or equivalents in Berlin? Governments have to be mindful of social peace at home, particularly with rising energy prices and inflation. If they don't take care of this aspect, there is a danger that public pressure will turn against the Ukrainians uh, over time, despite these incredible sympathy levels that Tamsin was talking about, because people will increasingly identify standing up to Russia uh, with impoverishment at home. So governments, I think, for the next few months are going to be in a tight spot, and we've got to give them a little bit of margin of maneuver. But the important thing is what the European Commission uh, proposed this week uh, in terms of gradually weaning the EU off uh, Russian gas and energy uh, by going to alternative suppliers. that has already started, by you know, having greater storage levels, by looking at pushing forward the you know, fit for 55 EU uh, green agenda, uh, uh, reducing overall dependency on Russia and on fossil fuels as, 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 as as well, um, and and so as long as everybody in the EU and I think Germany, of course, very importantly here too, with the Greens in the government, gets behind this agenda, uh, we can uh, at least uh, uh, together uh, adopt the really only feasible long-term solution here.
0: Yeah, thank you, Jamie. Well, what about the the second part of my question? How how tenable is it in the long term for us to stay out of uh, this war completely, not to provide a no-fly zone? not to supply aircraft, uh, as President Zelensky night after night pleads for and makes us all feel guilty uh, and feel, uh, implies that we share responsibility for the civilian deaths if we don't do this. And will there be some red line? Will there will there be a red line in your view that says, uh, for example, if Russia uses chemical weapons, then we will intervene? Or if Russia, uh, you know, because, um, we haven't looked at all the possibilities of escalation uh, if indeed Russia's assaults continues to stall and uh, uh, President Putin wants to uh, raise the stakes. What's your feeling about that?
2: Uh, Again, I think you've asked the the really $64,000 question, as our American friends say, uh, and it's not going to be easy for NATO. Uh, So far, NATO has got a clear policy, which at least is something, a clear united policy, which is, of course, to assist the Ukrainians uh, with defensive uh, weapons, Uh, even, of course, if defensive weapons have to destroy tanks and Russian aircraft, but which, of course, could not be used for Ukraine in any way to attack Russia as such, but defend itself, um, and to stay out of the conflict, of course, as I said, by not putting NATO planes or NATO troops uh, on the soil of Ukraine. And it's not just Biden. I I think it's all all of the NATO countries, even those who are most passionate uh, about standing up to Russia, that agree with uh, with that. NATO's mission, of course, is the defense of its member states. Uh, Rightly or wrongly, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Uh, and it does therefore make a difference. Uh, and I think, you know, given that Russia is a nuclear armed power led by a very reckless uh, and very incalculable president at the moment, who clearly is not winning his war and may be pushed into a corner for NATO to remain predictable and relatively calm and send clear unambiguous messages, I, I think is important. And I think by and large, NATO has done a good job of that so far. But your question is extremely valid, of course, and for two reasons, number one, it's very very difficult to uh, give the ukrainians the kind of assistance that they really need uh you know the sort of weapons that are really going to allow them to give russia a bloody nose exact a price on putin make putin sort of think again and and seek some kind of de-escalation or even some kind of uh, peace negotiation uh, on the future of ukraine uh, it's very difficult for nato to do that if nato doesn't up the ante and yesterday you saw already for example the uk uh, agreeing to give the russians some up uh, ukraine is part of me Freudian lapsus uh, give the ukrainians some uh, star streak uh, uk uh, um, you know, shoulder fire uh, missiles which are very effective uh, would be against Russian aircraft. So uh, the t- obviously, NATO therefore has to make the supply of arms and weapons meaningful and get them into Ukraine in large uh, uh, numbers. Drones, of course, would also uh, be a very important contribution there. Um, and of course, uh, Putin's calculus may be different from NATO. Uh, whereas NATO sees that as uh, keeping to the red line, Putin may see that this blurs the red line and may already see NATO as the aggressor and react accordingly. The second thing is related to what I've just said, which is you know, when does Putin feel that he is at war with the West? Uh, uh, Again, this is a different calculus to what we have. Uh, And again, NATO could be dragged in, not because of what it's doing in Ukraine, but because Russia could start retaliating by uh, putting ultimatums on the Baltic states, uh, by uh, carrying out massive cyber attacks, uh, uh, having special operation forces uh, carry out things like we saw in Salisbury. In the UK, a couple of years ago, in other words, uh, upping the momentum of hybrid warfare, well beyond oligarchs, are so simply laundering their dirty money on the London Stock Exchange, and therefore doing things which uh, force NATO also into some kind of response and retaliation. So, yes, I think uh, NATO is clear in its uh, in its policy but implementing that as the war goes on and your remark about chemical weapons is valid. Uh, NATO, the West did not respond militarily to the the, the use by Russia of chemical weapons in Syria. But uh, of course, again, Ukraine uh, uh, with the current public mood is different. And I think what NATO has to do is is not simply be reactive but plan and think imaginatively about these different scenarios, uh, define its options and have response options if and when it happens
0: thanks Jamie. well indeed, there are a lot of conundrums there and uh, I, I think that public opinion is is a player in this uh, situation which uh, you know we're going to have to need to take into account because first of all there's obviously differentiated public opinion to some extent between uh, Central Europe and Western Europe, but even to the extent in to an extent in Western Europe um, I think as we saw in past crises uh, Uh, When public opinion sees uh, 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 massacres going on on their television screens, then the pressure for something military to be done is bound to mount. And I I just leave that question out there uh, as to what would be... Uh, uh, possibly a tipping point, but I agree with you that for the moment we haven't reached that point, and NATO countries all seem to be pretty firm. Even the Polish co- government, which might be the most enthusiastic for supporting Ukraine, uh, finds itself in a position where it doesn't want to be singled out as it wants a flyer, a fighter aircraft to Ukraine, and therefore would rather ha- handle the problem through the United States, which isn't interested. Well, Tamsin, if I can come back to you Obviously, uh, this crisis in Ukraine uh, comes after two years of dealing with the uh, pandemic of COVID-19. Um, what's the impact on, on health systems that we're, all, uh, that we're already under strain? And how are these two uh, uh, crises going to, uh, uh, going to affect each other?
1: Uh, thank you, Paul. As you say, we've, we've had two years of the pandemic, and I think in Europe, we're rather hoping we've seen the back of it. Um, there is a huge risk now because uh, large numbers of people moving in very close proximity, coming from countries like Ukraine, where the the levels of vaccination against COVID were relatively low, going to countries like Romania, which also had relatively low levels of vaccination, is uh, a, a sort of serious threat for further spread of COVID. In fact, just this morning, there's a news report that 60 People arrived back in Nigeria having been evacuated from Ukraine. They were there to study. Sixty of them have tested positive on landing. So this is now immediately bumped up the risk in other countries. So large movements of population are a risk for infectious disease, and particularly when we, we haven't seen the back of a pandemic. And it's just to remind people that this, this creates a, a specific risk. We, we also need to, to think about uh, other aspects. For example, think about mental health. We already had, as a result of the pandemic, a huge mental health and trauma issue to deal with, whether that's the collective grief of families having having lost people, it's um, people having lost their jobs, it's the burnout and stress of frontline workers, so we already knew that we are massively short of mental health support. We need to be ramping up the training of our psychologists and mental health professionals. Um, there are some ways of dealing with that through IT tools and telehealth, but we know that that's going to be a, a big gap. In terms of looking at their health system, it perhaps is, might be a bit surprising to many people to know just how integrated Russia and Ukraine are in our sort of drug development processes. There's more than 1,500 clinical trials involving Russia and Ukraine. And this involves things like oncology treatments, um, uh, new treatments for schizophrenia, for anxiety and other products were being tested there. All of those will then be interrupted and will need to be redone. So we can see that. And also Ukraine, it was a biotech super hub Lots, it's very well qualified scientists doing early drug development that were then bought, bought up by pharma companies. So the whole pipeline of um, new treatments, new therapeutics is now going to be affected. We also need to be thinking about the the health needs. With a population of uh, 40-odd million people in Ukraine, there were 2 million rare disease patients. There were patients that need, are halfway through chemotherapy, that need dialysis. Some of them are physically able to move and have arrived without their patient records that now need to be picked up, and that continuity of care is so critical. And there were others that were too sick to move. So they're, they're adding to the health needs in, in Ukraine. So clearly a big impact, both in the immediate short term and also in the sort of five to 10 year drug development process, where we would also expect to see some negative impact.
0: Yeah, And as, as you said about the humanitarian situation, uh, this is going to be a long term situation. Uh, I think that there's sort of a lot of p- publics are being told that uh, refugees will be coming in for a few weeks, for a few months. But. What does history tell us about
1: that? Well, well, history tells us exactly <laughs> the opposite. Um, and you know, the UNHCR was saying that the average number of person, the uh, average number of years that somebody is displaced is at least thirty years. Uh, I think it's quite interesting to look at the profile of the people who are moving. It's mostly women with very young children, and those children need to get into school. They will need vaccination routines to be picked up, childhood vaccinations, and this, I think, is our biggest challenge. I was part of the solidarity movement in Belgium that hosted refugees. I, in 2018, um, I've over about a 15-month period, I had about 25 refugees and migrants pass through my home. Some stayed for up to four months. Some stayed for just one night. And there is a huge difference between offering someone the immediate support, you know, come in, a warm bed, some food, somewhere safe to sleep, etc., some quiet and calm. While they move on to do something else, and many of the refugees who pass through my home in Belgium were aiming for the El Dorado of the UK. But when they're there for longer, then all of the anxiety, the, the uncertainty, and for those migrants, they had no right to work, no right to education, no rights to anything. Things have changed. This temporary protection directive changes everything in the sense it provides access to everything so they have legal certainty they don't need to be afraid on the street they could be picked up by their police which is different from other migrants on the other hand it adds a huge burden for local government because it's local government that is the provider of social housing of education um, welfare and other things and they now suddenly have no planning and what we need to see is a planning strategy at coordinated national level that opens large numbers of new school places that can then provide more community health workers we need more more social housing and all of these things were already in relatively short supply in many countries we're also looking at the fact that the cost of living is going up and all the things that you and jamie spoke about in terms of energy prices is about to hit the the tab paying for all of the public measures from COVID is also going to be have to be paid quite soon at the same time we need to expand all of these public services so looking at some the very major challenges to deal with, yeah. infrastructure, public services, and budget, and the fact that we recognize it's not short-term, it's long-term.
0: So to sum up, basically, there's been a pretty encouraging and uh, uh, an uplifting immediate response, both uh, in the region and beyond around Europe, but uh, the, the long run, the absorption capacities of our societies and the impact on our politics, uh, when the prices rise and when uh, there's more pressure on housing, education, and so on, uh, that that's a, a battle that we we will still have to fight. Tamsin Rose, thank you very much. Jamie Shea, thank you very much. That ends uh, this week's uh, edition of the Frankly Speaking podcast. But I'm sure, with this as this crisis runs, we'll be back for more. Bye.